Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. I just wanted to give a quick podcast recommendation before beginning today's episode. Since we're doing Thermopylae, I thought it'd be fitting to plug Steve's show, the Spartan History Podcast. So take it away, Steve. Molon Lave, come and take them. It was with these famous words that King Leonidas of Sparta spurned the surrender offered by the Persian king Xerxes. Instead, by his refusal, he chose the immortalisation of his people's legend. Hi, I'm Steve, the host of Spartan History Podcast, where I take a chronological look at the Spartan people's beginnings in the mythic age and carry the story right through to their military dominance of classical Greece and beyond. Please check out my website at spartanhistorypodcast.com. All of my podcasts are freely available wherever you get your pods from. Come and take them. So it is with the Spartans. Fighting singly, they are as good as any. But fighting together, they are the best soldiers in the world. They are free, yes, but not entirely free. For they have a master, and that master is law, which they fear much more than your subjects fear you. The exiled King Demaratus to Xerxes in Herodotus' Histories. Hello, I'm Mark Selick, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 20, the Battle of Thermopylae. In our previous two episodes, we have covered the preparations that the Persians have made to launch their second invasion of Greece, continuing what is known as the Greek and Persian Wars. Then we saw the Greek response and how they prepared to meet this threat of the largest invading force to have marched on Greece before. The events surrounding the opening battles of this second invasion would reportedly take place around the same time. These would be the battles of Thermopylae and Artemisium with the former taking place on land and the latter a naval engagement. I have decided to break both of these engagements up into their own episodes so that we can cover them in more detail. We just need to keep in mind that both were unfolding roughly around the same time as each other. Both battles depended on one another and we will look once we have finished with Artemisium at the consequences of the invasion based on both outcomes. In today's episode, we will be looking at the engagement at the Pass of Thermopylae covering both armies' arrival at the pass and the three days of fighting that would take place. After that, we will have a brief look at the aftermath before then picking up the naval engagement of Artemisium in its own episode. Though, before dealing with Artemisium, I have decided to do an episode looking at the popular movie 300 in relation to the sources. But more on that at the end of the episode. In early July or August of 480 BC, the Onidas set out with his 300 Spartan warriors en route to Thermopylae. Along their march from Sparta, their numbers would swell as other Greek city-states also sent their contingents to the pass in the north, while others met them there. In all, around 7,000 Greeks had assembled at Thermopylae to defend against the Persians' march into the heart of Greek lands. According to Herodotus, as well as the Spartan hoplites marching into the pass, nearly another 1,000 Lacedaemonians accompanied Leonidas while a total of another 3,000 Peloponnesians were also sent on the march north. Closer to Thermopylae, the city-states of Thespis, Phocus, Locris and Thebes also provided troops. On the issue of Thebes, Sparta is supposed to have insisted that they provide troops that would march with Leonidas and his 300 to prove their loyalty to the Greek cause. They were suspected of having Persian sympathies. If this was the case, the troops they provided would most likely have come from the factions within Thebes, in opposition to the pro-Persian policy. Though how accurate this story was, we are not sure, as it could have well been invented in hindsight 
after future actions by Thebes a generation after the battle. With the Greeks assembled at Thermopylae, word reached them of the Persians' advance towards their position. It seems accounts of the vast size of the Persian army were once again starting to sow the seeds of doubt into the Greek defenders. A conference was held by the Greeks to outline their best course of action, with many of the Peloponnesians proposing that they should fall back and mount their defence at the Isthmus of Corinth. Leonidas, though, much to the relief of the non-Peloponnesians, voted that the army would stay and defend the pass at Thermopylae, while also sending an appeal back to the League members for reinforcements. Herodotus really seems to be stressing this invasion was unlike anything the Greeks had encountered before, and the size of the Persian army had to be seen to be believed, this being the second time that the Greek defenders looked to retreat from a position in the face of the Persian advance. Now that they had committed to defend the pass, the Greeks now needed to put in place a plan on how to hold their ground in the face of the Persian force. Today the pass at Thermopylae lay some 18 kilometres inland from the Gulf of Malia, but in ancient times the water came right up to the hills, creating a narrow trail between them and the sea. At points, known as gates, along the trail, it was scarcely wide enough for two chariots to pass each other. This is where the sections of the mountains were sheer cliffs, blocking any movement from spreading out into the mountainous areas. It was at one of these gates, the middle gate, that the Greeks would mount their defence. This would see that only a tiny part of the Persian army could engage the Greeks in battle at any one time, helping with the state of them being hopelessly outnumbered. The Greeks would also be able to rotate their forces out so that hoplite contingents could stay relatively fresh. The point here would also see one of the strongest arms of the Persian army nullified, the cavalry. It would be a battle of foot units. This would play into the Greek style of warfare, as all the Persians would be able to engage was the front of the Greek tightly packed phalanx, their spears bristling out in front of their positions and protected by a wall of bronze shields and armour. Also in the pass at Thermopylae was an old wall which had fallen into ruin. In the past it had served as a defensive structure built by the Phacaeans, in fear of an invasion from Thessaly. Now Leonidas ordered for the wall to be rebuilt to provide another obstacle for the Persians to deal with. Though one of the biggest considerations that had to be dealt with was only learnt once the Greeks arrived at the pass from locals in the area. Like at the pass at Tempe, there was a risk of being outflanked due to a track that led through the mountains on the Greek left. The knowledge of this path may have also gone some way into the proposal that the Greeks fall back to Corinth. At Tempe though, the risk of being outflanked was much greater, as two other passes were in the area that an army could march on. The path in the mountain at Thermopylae was more of a goat track that would have been unsuitable for a march of an army but still posed a risk for the Greek position. After considering what had been learnt from the locals, Leonidas decided to send the Phacaean contingent of 1,000 men into the mountains to defend this track from being used as an outflanking route. Xerxes and his army now closed onto the Greek position at Thermopylae. They marched through Thessaly, who being left to their own fate after the Greek retreat from Tempe, had no choice but to Medes. Here the land army and the fleet parted from their parallel march. With the fleet beaching in the region of Thessaly, the land forces then marched into Malia, which was the region just before the pass at Thermopylae. They followed the Gulf of Malia into a large open plain into the region of the city of Trachis. The area was enclosed by a mountain range and had a number of rivers flowing through it into the Gulf. Xerxes had sent out scouts ahead of the army and was well aware of the Greek positions in the pass. He decided that the plains before Thermopylae would be ideal to set up camp for the army and prepare to engage the Greeks or allow time for them to come to their senses and pull back or submit. Herodotus relays to us a story about some of the scouts that had gone ahead that reported on the Greek position, 
while then having Xerxes and the exiled king Demaratus discussing the report brought back to them. A Persian scout rode up to the Greek position near the reconstructed wall, where the Spartan contingent was currently posted. Many were out in the open stripped naked and exercising, while others were combing their long hair. The rest of the Greek force was well behind the wall and out of sight of the scout, who must have been bewildered at the sight of a handful of men engaged in such activities, in the face of such large forces. The scout was left alone by the Spartans to go about his mission, to where he was able to return to the Persian camp and make his report. Xerxes, when given the report, thought the actions of the Greeks were absurd and sent for Demaratus to explain this behaviour. On a number of occasions previously, Herodotus uses Demaratus to warn Xerxes of the Spartans and not to write them off. Here again, he reinforces his earlier warnings when he says, These men have come to fight us for possession of the pass, and for that struggle they are preparing. It is the custom of the Spartans to pay careful attention to their hair when they are about to risk their lives. But I assure you that if you can defeat these men and the rest of the Spartans who are still at home, there is no other people in the world who will dare stand firm or lift a hand against you. You have now to deal with the finest kingdom in Greece and with the bravest men. Xerxes pressed Demaratus further as he could not believe that such a small force would even attempt to do battle with his army. No matter what he was told, Xerxes remained unconvinced of the prowess of the Spartan warrior and would need to witness it for himself. As you may remember, Demaratus was a Spartan king who Cleomenes had deposed, which we saw some episodes ago. He had fled to Persia, where he had now become of use to the Persian court. He is supposed to have accompanied Xerxes on the campaign, acting as an advisor, Herodotus using him in his account to act as the wise advisor to Xerxes, especially on Spartan matters. Both armies were now in camp at their respective positions, but the fighting did not break out just yet. Maybe Xerxes, thinking there was no way such a small force would oppose his army, waited for the Greek resolve to dissipate. He gave the Greeks four days to abandon their positions, which would then have allowed his army to march unopposed south into Greece through the pass. Here, perhaps, on the fourth or fifth day, Xerxes gave the Greeks one last chance. We hear from Plutarch that messages had been delivered trying to entice Leonidas to side with him with the final message saying, Deliver up your arms. Leonidas then replies with the famous Molon Labe, or come and take them. It had now been five days since arriving before Thermopylae, and Xerxes' patience had finally run out. He could not understand why the Greeks would still stand before his forces, plus the issue of supply might have been on his mind. With his army all amassed in camp in one region for the last four days, they would have been consuming large amounts of the region's resources. It was now time to act and remove the Greeks from the pass so that he could once again get his army on the move. Xerxes now ordered up his first lot of contingents to enter the pass, though he still seems to be under the impression that the Greeks would come to their senses. Troops from the Medes and Sasaeans were sent forward with orders to bring the Greeks before him alive so he could question their actions himself. So the first of the Persian troops went into action against the Greeks and they suffered badly. The Greeks that they were to first encounter were that of the Spartans, who employed a clever tactic against them. The Spartans, being well drilled and disciplined, would feign a retreat in the face of the approaching Medes. On seeing this, the Medes would then lose all cohesion, breaking ranks to chase down the fleeing Spartans. Then, without warning, the Spartans would quit their retreat, reform, and would then engage the unprepared Medes, who were cut down in droves, now disorganised, after being so eager to chase the Spartans down. 
The Medes, though, did not give up. After suffering their initial losses, they would regroup while reinforcements would move up to replace the losses before moving in again into the pass. Xerxes, after witnessing from his position the failed attempts at subduing the Spartans and many casualties suffered by the Medes, he then had them withdrawn. It was time to finish this nonsense, so he called Ford Hardanis the commander of the Immortals. The Immortals were a corpse in the Persian army that consisted of 10,000 men and were the elite force within the army made up of their thick Persians and Medes. Of this 10,000 force were 1,000 hand-picked men, considered the bravest and most loyal who were known as the king's spearbearers, who acted as Xerxes' personal bodyguard. It is also thought that these troops would have been taken from the most noble families in the Persian Empire. The Greeks referred to this corpse as the Immortals, as they believed that the ranks would always stay at 10,000, with their fallen or sick instantly replaced. It doesn't seem like the entire corpse would have been thrown in against the Greeks, as Herodotus tells us their commander Hardanes was sent in with a picked force suggesting he selected a portion of the corpse for the attack. Also, one wouldn't have thought that Xerxes would have sent in his own personal bodyguard. So the immortals were sent in against the Greeks in the pass. Although they were greater in number than the defenders at the gates, they were unable to dislodge them from their position. The pass had nullified the immortals' advantage in numbers, and it was now the Greeks who had the advantage. The Persians were advancing onto the front of a bronze wall, the Greek spears able to strike them before they could get into position to use their own shorter spears. The fighting at the pass continued on, but the immortals were faring no better than the troops sent in earlier that day. With the Persian casualties piling up and only a few Greeks falling, Xerxes recalled his troops back to camp as the day was coming to a close. The next day, the Persian camp would have been a hive of activity, with the troops readying themselves for another day of fighting. The contingents to first go into battle forming up on the plains just outside the pass. The Greeks would have welcomed the night with the chance to rest and treat any wounds suffered in the day's fighting. With the sun rising though, they would be back into position ready to defend the pass once again. Xerxes had decided to send in his formations in much the same manner as the previous day. His reasoning, the Greeks would be tired and surely would be brushed aside this time. If his forces had suffered high casualties, the Greeks must be hurting from theirs too. The Greeks, though, on this second day, would implement their system of rotation, where they could cycle out the hoplites at the front ranks, which allowed everyone who fought time to recover and be ready for when they would be called upon next. Xerxes ordered his forces forward to finish off, in his opinion, what must be the remnants of the Greeks. As the Persians came forward, though, they were once again met with the well-disciplined hoplite shield wall, suffering greatly as they clashed with the Greeks. As the Persian formations took casualties, they would fall back to regroup to allow fresh formations to take up the attack. The Greeks, in these opportune moments, would rotate out of the front lines, putting fresh forces in place. As the day continued on, all the Greek contingents would take their place in the front ranks defending the pass. The Persians continued to throw themselves, formation after formation, at the Greeks, but to no avail. The Greeks still held firm, and the Persian dead continued to pile up. Xerxes at the end of another day's fighting must have realised that the Greeks were not suffering as his army was in the pass. Not only this, but his entire army had now spent nearly a week in camp on the plains just north of Thermopylae. Supplies and resources must be starting to run low. Xerxes needed to get his army on the move again, but throwing his troops against his bronze wall was not working. Another way needed to be found. Xerxes had severely underestimated the tenacity of the Greeks in the pass of Thermopylae. Maybe the words of Demaratus were now coming back to haunt him. 
On the advance into Greece, Xerxes had sought advice on the Spartans, where Demaratus commented on their fighting ability. Fighting singularly, they are as good as any, but fighting together, they are the best soldiers in the world. They were not simply going to melt away in the face of his army, as attested to by the severe losses of his troops, and many from these best formations. As the second day of battle was coming to a close, Xerxes would learn of another way of engaging the Greeks, this time avoiding their strengths. A Greek by the name of Ephialtes, a local in the region the Persians had set camp up in, came to seek an audience with the great king to share some local knowledge, and we are told in the hope of great reward. Surely though, Xerxes would have had men out combing the local population, trying to entice Greeks with local knowledge to come forward. Ephialtes revealed to Xerxes a tract that ran up into the hills that would bypass the position the Greeks held in the pass and effectively outflank them. The tract was not suitable for his entire army to travel. The cavalry and cart-driven supplies would not be able to use this route. Though a sizable infantry strike force could navigate the track and appear in sufficient numbers to threaten the Greek position. Ephialtes is the man told to us by Herodotus, who was responsible for betraying the Greeks at the pass, though he was aware of other stories. He found this to be the most credible account, as in his time it was well known that Ephialtes had been exiled from his city for this crime after the war and found refuge in Thessaly for a time. This track was known to most in the region as it had served a similar function during the war between Phocus and Thessaly, where the Malians revealed it to the Thessalians. So it isn't surprising that the Persians would eventually learn of the pass, as both were assisting the Persians by this stage. Ephialtes, being from the region, may well have revealed the pass, or he may have been a scapegoat for the crime after the war. Whatever the truth, it is interesting that the name Ephialtes has the meaning of nightmare or cause of nightmare attached to it. His information would lead to a nightmare for the men in the pass, as well as the rest of Greece, who anticipated the Greek force to hold out until potentially a larger army was ready to march. That evening, as Xerxes' troops were returning into camp to tend to their wounds and recover from the day's fighting, he sent for Hardanes once again. He ordered him to assemble the men under his command to prepare for a night march. Remembering here, Hardanes was the commander of the immortals. Xerxes briefed him on the track that had been revealed to him and Hardani's mission to outflank the Greek position, with Ephialtes to join them as a guide. The force of immortals had been marching all night through the hills, along the newly discovered track. When the sun rose, they were surprised to see a contingent of Greeks up ahead defending the way. This was the 1,000-strong force of the Phacaeans that had been sent up into the mountains to defend this outflanking path. The Persians formed up ready to do battle, and sent a volley of arrows into the Phacaean ranks. The Phacaeans, thinking that they were the intended target of this force, retreated further up to the peak to prepare for a last stand. Hardanes, seeing this, now ordered his troops to start descending the mountains, now that the Greeks were no longer blocking their path. It would seem that a sizable force was sent into the mountains, if not the full force of 10,000, as the 1,000-strong Phacaean force was threatened enough to retreat from their defensive position and ready themselves for their final stand. It would seem that the Persians were able to fix the Phacaeans in place, and have the rest of their forces continue on. Back in the past, the Greeks had been informed by some deserters during the night that a Persian force had started making its way through the mountain track. Leonidas would have been hoping that the Phacaeans would have been able to prevent the Persian advance along this route. Though once dawn arrived, the Greek lookouts were able to confirm the fears of the defenders. The Persians had gotten through, and nothing stood between them and the Persians now. With this news, the Greeks converged to discuss their best course of action, now that their position was under threat. 
The decision on what to do was divided with some of the contingents advising to pull back out of the pass, with others wanting to stand their ground. In the end, those wanting to flee left the pass, with many making their way back to their respective cities. Leonidas and his 300 Spartans remained, though, with the other contingents that had argued to stay put. The defenders were now in a more dire position, as their numbers had been severely reduced, and morale would have surely taken a hit. Seeing this, Leonidas decided to send all the remaining contingents away, except for his own. He likely saw that given their current state, the morale would not hold up to continued attacks from the Persians. He and his Spartans stayed to provide a rear guard against the Persians, helping cement the Spartans' reputation for standing their ground, as the rest of the Greeks left. Perhaps also, the oracle given to the Spartans was in his mind. Surely the Spartans would be eventually overrun, with Leonidas's death securing the safety of Sparta. All up, there were at least 1,400 men left in the pass. Leonidas would not allow the Thebans to leave, and the Thespians refused to abandon the Spartans. It is unclear if the other Lacedaemonians and Periochi remained. If so, this would have seen over 2,000 in the pass. Further to this, we know that the Helots had also accompanied the Spartans, who assisted them during the campaign. It is unclear if they also took up arms in this last battle, with some accounts hinting that they may well have. So as we can see, this becomes a little bit more than the last stand of the 300, as depicted in Hollywood. Xerxes didn't send his forces into the pass right away on the third day. He allowed enough time for the outflanking force to come down from the mountains behind the Greek positions. Once enough time had passed, he sent in his troops for a final attack. This time though, the Greeks did not hold the narrow gate, but came out much further where they could form up in greater numbers, while also avoiding, for the moment, the Persians in their rear. The Persians came on at the Greeks, who met their advance. The Greeks, knowing that their fate was sealed, fought with great tenacity, and many of the Persians were pushed from the cliffs into the sea, while others were trampled in the Malay. Herodotus paints a picture of the carnage in his writing to where the numbers of fallen were so great that it was impossible to count. As the struggle dragged on, the spears of the Greeks were breaking and most were now fighting with the butt spike from their broken spear or their short swords. At this stage, the Greeks had lost their major advantage over the Persians and were now fighting more like the times have passed, picking out individual enemies to engage. More of the Greeks were now starting to fall without the protection of their shield wall and the reach advantage of their spears. During the confused melee, King Leonidas is reported to have fallen, and those seeing this rallied around his body to prevent the Persians carrying it off. The struggle was desperate, echoing some of the scenes from the Iliad. The Greeks managed to fight off the Persians on four occasions before they were able to rescue Leonidas's body and drag him back from the thick of the fighting. With many of the Greeks having now fallen, and the immortals now getting into their position into the rear after descending the mountains, a call went out to fall back into the pass. Here the surviving Spartans and Thespians took up separate positions on small hills and prepared for their last stand. The Thebans are supposed to have surrendered to the Persians as the rest of the Greeks fell back. The Persians continued to come on at the pass, charging at the compact body of Greeks, who were now defending themselves with whatever they had left. We are told some were fighting with their hands and teeth. Many would have fallen on both sides, with the continued melee now also coming on from their rear. It is unclear exactly how the last phase of the battle played out, but from what we have, it seems once Xerxes or the commanders up front were aware of the Greek situation, they called back their troops to prevent further needless casualties. The Greeks now left stranded on their small mountain islands surrounded by the Persians were completely defenceless against the Persian archers, prepared to deal with the last stand. Days earlier, a Spartan soldier had been told 
that the Persian archers were so numerous that their arrows would block out the sun. He is then meant to have replied, Good, we shall have our battle in the shade. Under a hail of arrows from their front and rear, the Greek defenders of the pass were wiped out, falling where they stood. After three long days of fighting and seven days in camp, Xerxes was finally in control of the pass. Off of the coast of Thermopylae was a man named Abronicus, who was in command of a small 30-oared scout ship. He had witnessed the action up in the pass over the last few days. It was his job to maintain a line of communication with the Greeks at Thermopylae and the fleet at Artemisium. Now having seen the demise of the Greeks at the pass, he ordered that his crew now make their way to the Greek fleet to pass on what had unfolded on land. Xerxes, now that the fighting was over, took a tour of the battlefield. There were bodies strewn all the way from the opening of the pass to deep within. Along the tour, a corpse was pointed out to Xerxes. This was the fallen king Leonidas, who had been the man behind the week-long halt his army was forced to take. The Persian rulers had a reputation for treating fairly their defeated enemies, especially those who had distinguished themselves in war. Xerxes, though, allowed his anger and frustration to get the better of him. He ordered that Leonidas's head be cut off and placed on a stake for all to see. The Battle of Thermopylae has been popularised in our times as the last stand of the 300. Granted, Herodotus' account focuses mainly on Leonidas and his 300 Spartans. But he doesn't hide the fact that there were over 6,000 other Greeks present, and perhaps up to as many 2,000 at the final day's battle. Our popular culture seems to have ignored or pushed aside those parts of his account, though technically there were only 299, or maybe 298 Spartans that were part of the last stand. Herodotus tells us of two Spartans who were sent from the pass, either to recover from an eye infection or carry a message, perhaps to seek those reinforcements rather sooner than later. Whatever the reason, one of the Spartans was able to return to the pass to take part in the battle, while the other did not. Either he returned to Sparta due to his infection, while his partner chose to join the men at the pass, or on his return journey after delivering the message, he was in no rush to get back to the pass, although his partner was able to make it back. The Spartan's name was Aristodemus, and he would be ostracised, not in the same sense as Athenian ostracism, but ostracised socially within Spartan life. For a Spartan, this would have been the ultimate shame, but we will meet Aristodemus again in our episode on the Battle of Plataea, where he would be desperate to regain his honour. We also hear of another Spartan who would not be present at the final stand in a story that Herodotus had heard. Pentites was supposed to have been sent out on a mission into Thessaly to deliver a message, but would fail to return in time to the pass before all his fellow Spartans were wiped out. He had returned to Sparta, where he would also be labelled a trembler and shunned by his people. Eventually the shame and dishonour would take its toll for not having died with his king and comrades, and he would hang himself. The pass at Thermopylae had now fallen, and although, much to Xerxes' frustration, it had taken him a week to clear the pass, it had fallen much sooner than the Greeks had hoped, for as they had not had the required time for the current festivals in progress to run their course, and allow the forming of a large army to march out and meet the Persians. Though the Greek sacrifice would not all be in vain, as their stand there would quickly become legend, and an idea many others would rally around to defend Greece. Eventually the fallen of the pass were buried where they had been killed. It seems the Persians left them where they lay to rot. Over the burial site of the Spartans was the epitaph composed by Simonides. Go tell the Spartans 
stranger passing by, that here obedient to their laws we lie. But for now, the path into the heart of Greece was open. No other armies stood in their way. Although they would be able to ravage the countryside for now, the Persians needed to link back up with their fleet to sustain their invasion. The fleet, though, had its own obstacles to overcome. During the week that Xerxes and his forces were at the pass of Thermopylae, the Persian fleet was contending with Mother Nature, as well as Greek naval forces at Artemisium. In our next episode, though, before we move on to sea events at Artemisium, I want to stick with Thermopylae. This time, though, I'm going to look at the 2006 movie 300, directed by Zack Snyder. After some conversations with other podcasters and friends, I felt like focusing on this movie might be of some benefit. As a lot of people, it is their main connection to Greek history, so I hope I can show if and how accurate the movie is to those with a limited understanding of the history. But likewise, in the process, also show to those who perhaps dismiss the movie out of hand due to some fanciful elements, the actual historical connections that are there in the movie. My focus will be on the movie 300, but we need to keep in mind that this film was inspired by the graphic novel by Frank Miller of the same title. I will then be comparing it against the ancient Greek sources that we have of the battle today, with the main focuses on Herodotus and Plutarch, though with some others in there too. I plan to make my way through the movie, though not focusing on every little element, but still looking at many themes and events throughout the movie. I had put out to listeners on social media what they would like to see covered in this episode, and I had received a fantastic response, and I've made sure to cover all of these requests. The episode has been driven and written based around what people have wanted to see discussed, so I hope you will enjoy our look at Hollywood meets the historians of ancient times. Once we have finished with our look at 300, we will then head back to our narrative and switch our focus to the same point in time as the Battle of Thermopylae. But we will be looking at events that were taking place at sea. The invasion had two main elements to it. The land forces, who as we have seen, now had access to Greece. Though the navy was also essential to the campaign, and needed to eliminate the Greek fleet so as to continue their advance. A little further north around the coast of Thermopylae, a Greek fleet had stationed themselves at a place called Artemisium, where they would challenge the Persian fleet's advance. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. They go a long way into supporting the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 21, 300 Against the Sources. <laughs>